listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew, the first chapter, verses 1 through 3a. For those of you that would like to follow along, in the Pew Bible, it's page 783. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. I will never forget when Judah chose me to be the wife of his son Ur. I was young, but I had heard of Judah, a proud, harsh man, the son of a wealthy foreigner named Jacob, whose family believed that they had a divine claim to our land. Tragedy had struck Judah's family years before when his little brother Joseph died mysteriously in the wilderness. Rumor had it that Judah and his brothers were involved in Joseph's death but who could know for sure? Judah was very wealthy, and so when he asked my father to arrange my marriage to his oldest son, of course he complied. I had no say in the matter, but my life would never be the same. Ur was a wicked man, far more vile than even the worst rumors about his father. Still, I did my duty and honored him as my husband. Then one day, he dropped dead. I'd be lying if I told you that I wasn't a bit relieved, but things only got worse from there. Judah instructed his second son, Onan, to take me on as a wife in order to provide an heir for his dead brother. Onan wasn't as wicked as Ur, but he was just as deceitful. He refused to fulfill his duty and give me a son, so God struck him dead as well. Judah's wife, Bathsheba, swore that I was cursed that I was the reason her sons were dead. So Judah sent me back to my father's house to wait for his youngest son, Shelah, to come of age so that he could give me, so he could have me for a wife. So I went home and I waited for years. Shelah entered into manhood and Judah never called for me. He had broken his promise and now my father resented me. A cursed, childless, aging widow, nothing but a burden to my family, a disgrace, destined to die alone. So I took matters into my own hands. You may judge me, but what choice did I have? I found out that Judah was coming to town to shear his sheep. And so I removed my widow's garments, wrapped myself in a veil, and sat down by the road leading into town where the prostitutes were known to gather. Judah didn't even recognize me. It had been many years and his eyes were no doubt failing with age, but his libido was still intact. After we had done the deed, Judah revealed that he didn't have any money to pay me. And so he tried to get away with an IOU, promising to send me a lamb from his flock. But I knew better than to trust his promises. I made him give me his signet ring, cord, and staff as collateral. Then I returned home and took my place as a widow. When the news broke that I was pregnant, it was the talk of the town. Judah found out and declared that I should be burned burned. Can you believe that hypocrite? As I was being led out to be executed, I presented my father-in-law 
with the ring, cord, and staff of the man who had impregnated me. His ring, cord, and staff. For all the shame I have endured, it was almost worth it just to see the look on his face. That's when Judah surprised me. He declared that I was more righteous than him. My life was spared, and he finally took responsibility. I was justified, and my twin sons would be raised as the legitimate heirs of the house of Israel. The God of Judah has shown me mercy, and my life would never be the same. Let's hear it for our Tamar. <clears throat> Still, that was awesome. <clears throat> so, we're doing something a little bit different for Advent this year. Um, over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking uh, at the stories of four women who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We're going to dive into each one of their stories, uh, one each week, and we're going to see what truths, what wisdom they have for us, especially in this season of Advent. I thought about calling this series Jesus' Grandmas. doesn't really have that ring to it, though. Um, so instead, we're going with the title, Dangerous Women, with dangerous in scare quotes, and we'll get to that uh, in a minute. First, though, um, we're, gonna, we're talking about genealogies. These four women appear in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. So there's a few things you need to know about genealogies um, right from the get-go. <clears throat> genealogies are these long lists of names that we find scattered throughout the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so, on and on for generations. If you ever tried to read, like, straight through the Bible, the genealogies are probably the part that broke you. Am I right? Yeah. Um, they're not the most engaging thing to read. This is the part of Scripture uh, that we usually skip over. But genealogies are important. They tell us about a person's roots. They tell us who their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents are. They give us a sense of context for someone's life. Ancient authors would often highlight specific ancestors in a genealogy that had some sort of parallels to the person in question. Uh, nobody winds up in a genealogy by accident. That doesn't happen. So when you see these long lists of names in the Bible, it's an invitation to read between the lines a little bit and see what these ancestors have to do with their descendant, in this case, Jesus. One other thing that's really important to know about ancient genealogies is that women were almost never included. The ancient world, the world of the Bible, was a patriarchal society. Women didn't have rights. Um, in most cultures, they weren't even considered fully human. Um, often women were treated more like property. And for the record, that is terrible. I think we need to own that. Uh, we still have a ways to go in our culture when it comes to gender equality and the treatment of women, but thank God we've advanced at least beyond the patriarchal times of the Old Testament and the ancient world. But in this patriarchal society, where women weren't even treated as equal human beings and would never be listed in a genealogy, Matthew lists four. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women from the Old Testament, a fifth if you count Mary, who all pop up in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, which is fascinating. 
If we look a bit closer at Matthew's genealogy, um, sort of a visual representation, it looks something like this. There's a lot of dudes there, which is what you would expect. But every few generations, there's this interruption to the flow. Male, 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 female. Male, 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 female. Male, female. And on it goes. What's with these interruptions to the flow? What are these four women doing in Jesus' family tree? Why would Matthew include them, and especially these four? Church leaders and Bible scholars have been wrestling with that question for about 2,000 years. And does anyone want to guess what these predominantly male Bible scholars has offered up uh, generally as an answer to this? What these four women all have in common in the minds of a lot of these church leaders through history? Anyone want to guess? Shout it out. Go ahead. They appeared in some way that was important. They appeared in some way that was important, definitely. It's a bit darker than that, though. Martha. They continue the lineage. They continue the, the lineage, yep. But there are other women who continue the lineage who aren't listed. Why do you think most Bible scholars say these four? The answer we're usually given is sin especially sexual sin. The thing most church leaders and Bible scholars have pointed to over the generations about what these four women have in common is that they're all immoral women, dangerous women in one way or another. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law in a very weird story that we're going to dive into in about a minute. Rahab was a prostitute. That was her job. That was what she did. Um, Ruth was a Moabite, which in ancient Israelite culture was probably just about the only thing worse than being a prostitute would be being a Moabite. And Bathsheba is often remembered as an adulterous woman who caused King David sin. The explanation we've been given for generations is that these are four immoral women who were included in Jesus' family tree as an act of grace. To show how God's love is so big, it can even reach out to women like these. I would like to suggest a different interpretation. Are we up for that? Yeah. <laughs> Yay, good, excellent. <laughs> Doesn't take much convincing in this church, which is why I love this church. Good. We're at a really pivotal point in our culture, I think. In the last, like, two to three years, it's sort of like floodgates have opened. I'm thinking of, like, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement. We've seen women um, really coming forward in a very public way, sharing their stories, uh, speaking up, uh, talking about ways that they have been victimized and the victims of, of violence at the hands of men. So I think now is as good a time as any to go back and give the stories of these four women a second to actually try listening to them. Let them speak on their own terms. If we do that, I think we might discover that these dangerous women actually have a lot to teach us. So let's dive in. Let's begin that work today. Uh, we're going to look at the story of Tamar, which we just heard um, from Jill. Uh, but we're going to read it as well. If you have a Bible with you, you want to open up to Genesis 38, it'll be on the screen as well. I'm curious, though. Show of hands. How many people know the story of Tamar before today? How many people have a handling on this one? Not many of you, which is awesome, because this is a weird one. So we are, let's, let's dive into this. Genesis 38, 
beginning in verse 1. You're not going to remember this story from Sunday school. It's a safe bet. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adullamite whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. You don't need to remember all these names, by the way. The only two people in the story who really matter are Judah and Tamar, who we're going to meet Tamar in a minute. Judah married her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son, whom she named Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Chazib when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible. Are there any kids in here, by the way? probably way too late to ask that question, but this, this gets into some pretty dicey territory. <clears throat> just to break down uh, what we just read a little bit, the two main characters are Judah and Tamar. Judah, you might actually remember from the story of Joseph, Joseph in the coat of many colors. Any Donny Osmond fans here? You know the story of Joseph? Joseph had these 10 big brothers, but he was the favorite, and his father gave him this beautiful coat, which made his brothers really jealous so jealous that they decided to kill him. You guys know this story? This is a, a classic Sunday school story. Judah is one of Joseph's big brothers. He's one of the oldest. And he's the one that, uh, when the other brothers decided to kill Joseph, Judah's the one who speaks up and he's like, let's not kill him. That won't, that won't benefit us at all. Let's sell him as a slave and make some money. That's Judah. Not a good guy. Then Judah grows up. He has three sons. The oldest marries Tamar, Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandma, spoiler alert. But Judah's son is wicked, and so God kills him. Because we're in the Old Testament, and that's just how things worked back then. So then Judah's second son marries Tamar to produce an heir for his dead brother. This is a practice called Levite marriage. Um, this was an actual law. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Stipulating that if a man dies without a male offspring... The dead man's brother has to marry the widow to produce an heir for his brother, which like, ew, right? A little icky. I know we have some married women here today, and I don't know how you feel about your brothers-in-law, but you probably don't like them that much, right? Um, so this is really kind of an icky snapshot of the ancient world. It's important to remember, though, this story is playing out in a patriarchal society. Women have zero rights at this point in history. Which, again, awful, terrible. Thank God we've evolved beyond that. But it's important to sit with that for a minute and understand what life would have been like at this time. The ancient world was brutal, especially to women. If you're a woman in Old Testament times, the only way you survived and maintained your safety was by having some sort of a man in your life who protected you. First it would be your father, 
then a husband, and then hopefully sons. So in most cultures at that time, if your husband died and left you without a son, that was it. Life is over. You'd probably end up either dead, a slave, a prostitute, or if you were really lucky and your father was still alive, um, age of death on average was around 40 back then, so good luck with that. But if your father was still alive and had the means, he might take you back into his household to protect you until he dies, and then you're back at square one. So the ancient Israelites developed this system called Levite marriage, where the dead man's brother would take the widow as a wife, number one, to produce an heir for the dead brother, but number two, to ensure that the widow was protected. So this practice, which feels very icky and barbaric and backwards, was actually a giant leap forward for the time. This was a way in a society where women had no rights to ensure that widows were protected. The only problem is we're dealing with Judah and with Judah's family. Judah's a bad guy. He's the villain in this story. His first son, Ur, is so evil, God kills him. His second son's not better, uh, not much better. Onan refuses to do his duty. He basically uses Tamar for his own pleasure refusing to produce an heir, and so God strikes him dead as well, which, if nothing else, is efficient. So Judah sends Tamar back to her father's house and promises that he'll send for her once his third son comes of age, but let's see how that goes. We're going to pick back up with the story in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Harah the Adullamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Tamar saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah broke his promise. The third son has come of age, and he didn't send for Tamar. Verse 15. When Judah saw Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. Smooth. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. Pause for a second, make sure we're following along. Judah does not have the money to pay this woman who he is propositioning for sex. It's important to acknowledge that. Tamar said, only if you give me a pledge until you send it. She's learned not to trust him at this point. Judah said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him Then Tamar got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. This is a very weird story, you guys. But I want to make sure we highlight the reality of what's happening here. It's easy to miss. Tamar is a woman who's been denied justice. She's a childless widow in a culture where being a childless widow was a death sentence. No one's marrying her. She's way beyond marriageable age. She's probably viewed as cursed since her first two husbands died, although the text is very clear that it was God who killed them. She's the victim here. 
and Judah is the one who has denied her justice. Tamar has no legal means to protect herself. She can't take Judah to court and sue him or make Shelah marry her, so she takes matters into her own hands. Tamar uses the very limited tools at her disposal, her body and her own ingenuity, and she tricks Judah. She does what she has to to survive. Morally questionable? Sure. But Tamar is not some damaged, immoral woman. She's a woman in a broken system who refuses to lay down and die. When Judah finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant and that she got pregnant through prostitution, he declares that she should be killed because in addition to being just a terrible person, Judah is also a hypocrite. But then Tamar presents her father-in-law with the collateral he provided in her, uh, for her, the signet ring and the cord, which is like the, the equivalent of giving someone your ID to hold on to to prove that you're going to pay them later. She reveals quite publicly that he's the one who impregnated her. To which Judah replies, she is more righteous than I. This is huge. Judah has been the bad guy up to this point. He raised two evil sons, he sold his own brother into slavery, and Tamar is the first person who refuses to stand for it. She's the first person to call him out, publicly humiliating him, and revealing his hypocrisy, and it seems to work. Judah brings Tamar into his house. He raises her two sons, Perez and Zerah, as his own, and one of them, Perez, becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. What an odd story to find in our Bibles. And what a messed up family, too, right? Like, like if you think your family is bad, if your Thanksgiving dinner was a freak show, um, <laughs> Jesus' family has yours beat, trust me. What's this strange story doing in our Bibles? Like, of all the stories that the Israelites could have held on to, retained, written down, why did this one make the cut? If we can answer that, we just might figure out what Tamar is doing in Jesus' family tree. You all remember the Joseph story? Talked about it a second, second ago. Judah's little brother, he got the coat of many colors, he was sold into slavery. If you know that story, what happens to Joseph is he ends up in Egypt, and over many, many years, he works his way up to where he is second in command to Pharaoh. He's the second most powerful person in the country. Then a famine hits, and Judah and his brothers go down to Egypt to buy food, where they run into Joseph, only they don't recognize him. It's been too long. They assumed he was dead, but Joseph knows them, and he tests them. He messes with them. He takes his youngest brother, the youngest of the flock, now the new favorite, Benjamin, and he locks him up and says he's going to keep him as a slave. Joseph is testing his brothers. He wants to see if there's been any growth here. Will they do anything different? Have they changed? And does anyone who knows this story remember what happens? Anyone remember who steps up? Judah. Judah steps forward and offers his life in place of Benjamin. Judah, 
Like, what the heck happened to Judah? At that moment, when he steps forward, Joseph breaks down crying. He reveals himself to his brothers. There's a family reunion. And these 12 sons of Jacob, Judah and his brothers, the ancestors of the Israelites, are saved from the famine. How does Judah go from selling his own brother as a slave to offering his life in the place of his, of his brother? What happens between point A and point B to bring him to there? We only have one other story about Judah in our Bibles, and it's this one, where Tamar publicly humiliates him after tricking him, and where he declares that she is more righteous than him. Tamar saves Judah. It's not her goal. She's just trying to stay alive, but that's the effect of her actions. She is more righteous than I is the story of Judah's conversion. That's his come-to-Jesus moment, if you will. Tamar forces Judah to confront who he really is. And in so doing, she not only saves him, she saves all of Israel. You want to know why this story is in our Bibles? You want to know why the Israelites held on to this one? There are no Israelites without this story. Without Tamar doing what she did, there's no conversion of Judah, there's no reunion with Joseph, and the ancestors of Israel, Judah and his brothers, starved to death in the desert. Tamar saved Israel. Her story is the story of salvation coming from unexpected places. A cursed, childless widow with no rights who takes matters into her own hands and manages to wrestle justice out of the jaws of injustice. And whose actions save an entire people from starvation. Salvation coming from an unexpected place. That's Tamar's story, and isn't that the story of Advent? Isn't that exactly what we celebrate in this season leading up to Christmas? Salvation that comes in the form of a baby, born to a poor, unwed mother. A baby who becomes a refugee, fleeing with his parents to Egypt to escape violence. A child who, as an adult, becomes a poor, homeless, itinerant preacher and goes on to die an unjust death at the hands of a corrupt and brutal system. Salvation coming from an unexpected that's the story of Advent, it's the story of Tamar, and that's also the story that brings us to this table. Salvation coming from unexpected places is what brings us back here every month to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. His body broken and his blood poured out in the biggest twist of history. To ensure our salvation. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the story, for the theme of salvation coming from unexpected places that runs throughout our Bible. From figures like Abraham and Moses, to Judah and Tamar. 
right through to your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice, and we thank you for the grace and the love with which it was offered. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.